I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to fill in for Sam while he's on vacation, but that means I want to hear embarrassing stories about him so that I can hold that over his head. Um, and I got to bring my whole family uh, with me this time, and I'm glad about that. If you get a chance to meet them, you'll learn that there are at least four more interesting Gustines than me. Um, it's good to be here. I want to jump right in, but I want to jump in with a, with a question. And I, admittedly, it's a little bit of a heavy first question. Um, so I'm just going to ask it and give just a little space for you to, to think about it, because we want to do this work together. Um, so the question is this, who are the forgotten people? You might think, well, if I knew them, they wouldn't be forgotten. Um, but you know, you know what I mean, I think. In, you know, like in our world, in our nation, in, in this city, maybe in your day-to-day life, who are the forgotten people? I want you to start to call people to mind. Um, maybe it's a, a people group, individuals that you're aware of. Who is it that's forgotten? And as you start to kind of make a little list in your, in your mind, ask yourself, what is it that these folks have in common? What do they have in common? These often forgotten people. What I want to do is hold these folks in our collective remembrance today uh, and to kind of center them as we ask God to help us see and hear and live more faithfully. Um, Because in our story today, uh, from John chapter 4, we encounter one of these forgotten people, uh, one of the forgotten ones. Um, But what we get to do is also then witness what happens uh, when one of these forgotten ones is remembered by Jesus. So in John chapter 4, it's a very famous story. If you've been in church, you've probably heard it. I saw it first on a flannel graph in Sunday school a long time ago. This is the story of the woman at the well. If you haven't been in church, you might have even heard it. It's, it's, it's a very famous story where Jesus encounters this woman and asks her for a drink. The very famous passage about Jesus being the living water. But I bring this up today because I want us to think about uh, this woman and her encounter with Jesus because she is a forgotten woman. Uh, she's a forgotten person. And we know that at a lot of different ways. There's at least three ways in which she is forgotten or overlooked or pushed out to the side. Uh, the first is that she's, she has no name. She's referred to as a Samaritan woman. And it's not just that John left out all of the names. In the previous chapter, Jesus meets with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is given a name. This woman is not. Why is that? Well, Nicodemus was a man in a man's world. The first century was very patriarchal. So he probably was more well-known just because of that. But also he had power. He had a position. He had influence. Those are the people that get remembered, right? Those are the people whose names we know. But this woman isn't given a name because she is a woman. She's unremarkable. She doesn't have power and position. She doesn't have a name. She's nameless. So I wonder if that list that you were making in your mind of forgotten folks, if some of them might suffer from what we could call namelessness, is that why they're forgotten? I thought about that this morning. I was getting my 
my morning coffee, and um, there was a customer in front of me, and the, the person behind the counter had forgotten part of their order, and this customer was extremely unhappy about uh, the wait that they had to endure for their coffee. And the, the person behind the counter made it right, was very apologetic, and the, the customer took their drink and walked all the way to the door and then turned. It was like slow motion. You could watch it. It was like a car crash about to happen. And she turned, came all the way back and proceeded to ask these humiliating questions of the person behind the counter to put her on display, uh, to remind her that she was really nobody, right? Like, you're just the person behind the counter. You may have a name tag, but you're nameless. Uh, the, the person who is nameless is the one that we feel very free to just disrespect, right? That's not a normal human interaction, but, but the person without a name, we can get away with that. I wonder if maybe there are some people like that on your list. The second reason she was forgotten and pushed to the side was because she was a Samaritan. Now, you may know this a little bit of background. Jews didn't like Samaritans very much. There were a lot of different reasons for it. Um, but John's readers would have understood that, that there's nothing good about a Samaritan, particularly a Samaritan woman. In fact, Jewish leaders had created all of these legal, cultural loopholes that basically allowed for discrimination and prejudice against Samaritans. Leaders circulated stories and trumped up these charges that accused Samaritans of being violent. They were hated by God. They were theologically inferior. Uh, there was this perception from Jews towards Samaritans that they were a vile and less human race. If there was a concept of race back then, that's how they would have described it. So they had rules about interacting. They even had rules about not being allowed to drink from the same wells as Samaritans. So they had this sort of like separate drinking fountain ordinance, which sounds familiar. And the reason is because there was an ethnic difference. Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. And Jews used that ethnic difference to create this barrier of exclusion and hostility and hatred between these two groups. And so this woman walks around and has this cultural and ethnic difference, which from the Jewish perspective would have given them permission to call her unworthy to be remembered. So she's nameless and she's other. I wonder if maybe there were some folks on your list like this woman who are ethnically other. They might be from some other place. They might have a different skin color. They might be a different gender or something like this. I wonder if there's some people on, I imagine that might be what it feels like to be an immigrant these days, to be ethnically other and so pushed out and ignored and forgotten. So she didn't have a name. She was ethnically different. But then also there's this question of her lifestyle. There's this question of her lifestyle, and if you know this story or you've heard it talked about, we talk about this part a lot, and it's important, I think, because it's a central part of the reason why she's forgotten and pushed out, even within her own community. Uh, even within the Samaritan community, she was excluded. We learn later on in verse 17 that this is a woman who's been married five different times and is now living with a man who's not her husband. And, you know, you might say, well, <clears throat> maybe she was a, a widow, but, but it's actually, scholars agree, there's, there's absolutely no chance 
that, that she's been married five times because she's been widowed that many times, and the person that she's living with, it, it points to the fact that she uh, was, was kind of a promiscuous woman. We don't have any idea about the circumstances that kind of lead to those choices or that lifestyle. That We don't know what drove her toward that. But the reality is that her circumstances or her lifestyle leaves her written off and forgotten. She walks around kind of with that scarlet letter, right? She's a woman of ill repute. She has a bad reputation. And we know that because in the story, she comes to this well at noon, which seems like kind of an unimportant detail, but it's actually really important. Because just the same way that like at the office, the water cooler is where people gather and talk and share stories and build community and all of this, that was the same way because the well in every community was the place that everyone gathered. And usually it would be women, they would come to gather the water for the day and talk and share stories and build community, maybe gossip a little bit, and then you know go back to the, their house for the rest of the day. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that at noon, it's probably like 120 degrees. So nobody's going to the well at noon. In fact, at noon, people were usually taking a nap at that time of day, which I am all for bringing back. <laughs> this noontime nap, we need to recover. Jesus did it, so. Um, people were taking a nap at that time. They weren't coming to get well. They would do that early in the morning before the, the sun made everything too hot. But here is this woman who comes at noon. And the reason, of course, is because She's not welcome to come when all of the other women show up to gather the water. Her reputation has gotten around that she gets around, and so she's not welcome to be a part of this community. She experiences that, that marginalization, that exclusion, such that she has to come in the heat of the day to gather her water. She's pushed out and forgotten by her own community. And so this woman has this scarlet letter. And so I wonder if some of the folks that are on your list of forgotten folks might be that same sort of, uh, they carry a reputation around that leaves them forgotten or pushed to the edge. You know, Jim just talked about celebrate recovery and it struck me that walking through the world with the label addict would be a pretty big burden to bear. Um, that might be an example. This nameless, ethnically other woman with a scarlet letter reputation is totally forgotten. It's interesting to me that, <clears throat> like in John chapter 8, when the woman is caught in adultery and everybody wants to stone her, right? They're, they're so angry. The, this woman, they don't even care enough to hate her like that. She's just out of their minds entirely. There is this utter forgottenness. It is a total exclusion. But what happens when this totally forgotten woman encounters Jesus? She's remembered. She gets remembered in at least two ways. The first is that Jesus simply remembers her. Because in a situation where she is totally forgotten, Jesus doesn't. When no one sees her, Jesus does. Jesus remembers her in her forgottenness. In verses 3 and 4, the, the story says that Jesus is on his way to Galilee. And interesting that, the, that John says he, he's on his way to Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria to get there. He has to go through Samaria to get there, except that he doesn't. 
He doesn't have to. Jews had a, a custom of actually walking around Samaria to get to Galilee. So he didn't have to do it, and everybody would have expected him to walk around. And he wasn't doing it because he was on this time crunch, because the text tells us later that he stayed there, actually, for a couple of days. So he wasn't trying to take a shortcut. And it also uh, is worth pointing out that this is the only thing Jesus does in Samaria. It's not like he had a big list of errands or a whole bunch of people he wanted to meet up with. This is the only thing he does. He has this encounter and the rest of the story unfolds, and then he goes over to Galilee. Which means that if John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria and it wasn't about geographic, this is the only route, or it wasn't a shortcut, or it wasn't because he had a whole bunch of things to do, then the reason Jesus had to go to Samaria was to meet this woman. He remembers her. It's central to his mission to go and encounter this forgotten woman. He had to go because she was there. And what does Jesus do in, in, in verses 5 and 6? It says that Jesus goes and he finds Jacob's well, and because he's tired and thirsty from the trip so far, he sits down and he waits. But he could have chosen, theoretically, any place to sit and wait. But because we know that he came to Samaria for this woman, he's at that well to wait for her. He's at that well and he's waiting for her. And this is the thing that amazes me. Because yes, he's waiting for her, but he's waiting at the well. You think about what that well represents to this woman. Every day that she goes to get water, she's reminded of her exclusion. Every day that she goes to get water, she's reminded of the shame that has pushed her out of community, the reminder that she doesn't belong, the reminder that everyone has forgotten her, and Jesus waits for her right there. In a room this size, it is absolutely the case that there are people in here who have experienced that same kind of exclusion. Either you are nameless, or you are other, or you have some kind of label that you're forced to carry through the world in some way. And I guess what I would want to say is that in the spaces where you experience that exclusion and that forgottenness most intensely, that's where Jesus is waiting for you. Jesus waits for us in our deepest experience of forgottenness and exclusion. And it matters not why you are there. And it doesn't matter because that's where he is. Jesus remembers her right at the place of her most intense forgottenness. Jesus remembers her. The second thing, though, that I would say is that Jesus remembers her. In other words, Jesus puts her back together in several ways. The, the first thing Jesus does is he puts her back together with God. If we were to look here uh, at, at verses 9 through 14, we continue this story. They're having this conversation. They've just met Jesus, asked her for a drink. And in verse 9, it says, the Samaritan woman says to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. See, she's aware of the fact that she's forgotten. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. 
And Jesus answered her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you, you don't have anything to, to draw with and the well's deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob who, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also his sons and livestock? And Jesus says, well, every, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus knows that there is this thing in all of us that is thirsty to find some sense of wholeness and satisfaction. And he knows that this woman's life is a record of her attempt to find satisfaction, to quench a thirst of some kind. And that she keeps going to the well again and again and again, expecting to find satisfaction to quench a thirst that never seems to get quenched. And Jesus says, in me, not only will the thirst be quenched, but you won't have to go to the well because that will, well will live inside you. Never again will you have to go looking for it because you will walk around with it. Jesus is putting her back together with God. He says, have me. He's offering her himself a way to rejoin her life to God's life which is exactly what God had intended for her from the beginning. So Jesus is putting her back together with God, but he's also putting her back together with herself. And I guess it's kind of a weird way to say it, but what I mean is that he's, he's putting the broken pieces of her life back together in this story. Look at this in verses 15 through 18. <clears throat> the woman says to him, Sir, please give me this water. I'll, I'll have that. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. And he tells her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So this is interesting. I, I want us to think about this, that this is the moment where Jesus begins to put her back together. So Jesus says, go call your husband, and, and she says, I have no husband. I think that's an interesting response because I think it, it gets at something we maybe all do. Um, it is true what she says. She doesn't have a husband. But it's also a version of the truth that's socially acceptable. It's fine for her to not have a husband. What's not fine is for her to have, her to have had five and to now be living with somebody who's not. So what she says is true, but it's just dressed up enough for public consumption. You understand? It's like that when you walk into church and somebody says, how's it going? And it's really going terrible. And you find the one thing that might be going, it's going okay. <clears throat> it's just the socially acceptable thing. And I'd like to submit, maybe we all uh, are kind of like that. We all maybe deke Jesus that way. We're where we want to show the, the part of us that is acceptable. It's almost like a, it's a mask that we wear. Maybe because we are culturally conditioned by shame to hide the parts of our life that give others permission to exclude us or to label us or to marginalize us. We, <clears throat> the, the stuff that lets people call us 
the things that push us out to the side. Maybe that's the part we want to hide, and so we put a mask up. But here's the thing. Hiding behind masks that we create to present ourselves to the world, even if it's to avoid the pain of the world or to avoid the pain of our own stories, hiding behind those masks will never put our lives back together. So Jesus does something that I think is pretty interesting. He calls out the full truth of her story in this moment. He says, well, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And now you're living with somebody who's not your husband. Every time I read this, I think, uh, Jesus, that's pretty forward. <laughs> I mean, you just met her. For all we know, he doesn't know her name yet. And we're, you know talking about how many husbands she's had. But if he said that to me, I'd have either run the other way or put up some sort of defense or gotten belligerent with him. But she doesn't do that. She says, whoa, I can see that you're a, a prophet. And, he, and it actually draws her in deeper. This is the amazing thing to me, that Jesus is inviting her to own the full truth of her story without pushing her deeper into shame. That is unusual. Jesus is inviting her to own the full truth of her story without pushing her into shame. And I don't know that I see that very often in the world. It reminds me of the opening verses of John where, where John tells us about the Jesus he's about to really tell us about. And in John 1.14, he says this, the word that is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. I think, is there an example of Jesus being more full of grace and truth than right here in this moment? Where he can invite her to own the full truth of her story without pushing her deeper into shame, to me is evidence that he is fully full of grace and fully full of truth in the same moment. The interesting thing to me is that this is a... This is a topic of conversation that is coming up now in the sort of larger Christian world, this notion of grace and truth. And I noticed something interesting about it is that when people talk about today being people of grace and truth, they talk about it as though it's a matter of balance. We have to balance grace and truth. The idea is that maybe there are times where we get too full of grace, like we let people get off the hook with things that they're doing wrong. And to counteract that, we got to make sure that we load up on truth, really lay the hammer down, because heaven forbid they think that what they're doing is okay. Or the opposite, where we watch people lay the hammer down and get all judgy on folks for things they do or whatever. And so we come over here and we just sort of like, hey, it's cool, right? Jesus is cool with whatever. We talk about grace and truth like they're opposite sides of a scale, and we just have to figure out how to balance it. But... John didn't say that Jesus came perfectly balancing grace and truth. He was full all the time of both grace and truth. And I will say, I don't fully understand that mystery, but this is a moment where Jesus demonstrates this idea to me. He is so full of grace and truth that the invitation to own what is actually true of her actual story is somehow good news. We'll find out later 
that it's this moment when he says, nope, you've had five husbands, that is the moment that unlocks her heart to Jesus. Crazily, crazily to me. When Jesus does this, the broken pieces of her life start to be reassembled. We're witnessing her being remembered by Jesus. He's putting her life back together right in this moment. So he's putting her back together with God. He's putting her back together. But he's also putting her back together with her community, the, the people that had pushed her out to the margins to begin with. And he does it in this surprisingly awesome way. In verse 27, it says that Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman because they understood that Samaritans and women were not people that they should associate with. No one asked him, what do you want or why are you talking with her? But then she leaves her water jar and goes back into town and says to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? That's the connection. She connects being told everything she ever did with the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's the grace and truth. Come see the man that told me everything I ever did. Jesus brings her back to the community, and she preaches the gospel. She preaches the gospel, and when she preaches the gospel, she's being reintegrated into this community, and the reason we know that is because they hear her and they believe her. An hour earlier, she was a persona non grata. She was not allowed to even come and draw water, and now this entire community is watching this woman, excluded, ethnically other, woman of ill repute, preach the gospel, and they believe her. I want you to let this sink in. This woman is the first apostle to the Samaritans. Tell me that's not radical. Jesus remembers her, reattaches her to her community, and not only that, gives her purpose and calling and mission. It's a great example of how Jesus' mission is extended to the world from the margins. Sometimes I think that it's my job to take the gospel to the margins, but this is a reminder that, that the gospel really takes root and comes to me from the margins. So what does this mean for us as the church and as a church? What does it mean for us? And that, I think I would say this, that remembering the body is a major part of being the body. Remembering the body is a major part of being the body. It's the reality is that there are forgotten people in the world, in our nation, in our city, in our day-to-day life. There are forgotten people. But the, the thing is that the reality that there are those forgotten people is far less a reflection of those forgotten people than it is a reflection on the people who forgot them. And there are forgotten people, and Jesus remembers And to be the church is to be the body of Christ, which means that we are called into the same work of remembering those who are forgotten, the ones who are nameless, the ones who are other in some way, the ones who walk through the world having to shoulder bad reputations. The question to me is, how do we live in a world that mirrors the reality of Jesus, where we show up and we wait? 
And then we see and we celebrate and we eagerly expect them to show us something of Jesus, not just the other way around. That we will encounter something of the good news from the person who has been forgotten if we simply would remember them. Are we willing to put ourselves in the places of people's forgottenness? Jesus had to go to Samaria because it was so central to his mission. Are we willing to go to the places everyone wants to walk around because we see it central to our mission? We've been holding this list of people in our minds this morning. Let's bring them back out. And can we pause a moment to ask ourselves what it is that God would have us see and hear about those folks? What is it that God would want us to see more clearly about the forgotten people that he has never forgotten? The fact that they're overlooked says more about us than about them. Remembering is a major part of being the body. And it's not just an out there question. Because this is a work we have to do in our community as well. It's important in our life together as well. I think about the way that Paul talks about being the church in 1 Corinthians 12. I, I kind of want to look at this a little bit because it reminds us that the church is a community that's being remembered, put back together. Look at this uh, beginning in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Paul picks up on this image of the church as the body. And he says this, Just as the body, the one, has many parts, but all of those many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the one body is not, is made up of one, not made up of one part, but of many. You see all those lines of difference? Jew and Gentile, slave and free. That's a major theme for Paul in almost every one of his letters. When Paul talks about what it means to be the church, he's talking about this community where people from all different types of groups that in our world have been separated by hostility and hatred and division are being put together again. The body of Christ is being remembered by Jesus. And when there is a community that includes all those differences within one body, it is evidence that we're a Jesus community. I don't remember what museum it was at, but did anybody ever go see the Body Worlds exhibit? You know what I'm talking about? The Body Worlds where they take people and like cut them up and they like expand them out. So you have like a normal human riding a bike, but it's like, three or four times the size. You guys are staring at me like I'm crazy. Has you, have you all seen this? It's super gross, actually, um, because they take the actual human body and they cut all the tendons and bones apart and everything, and then they like expand it out so that you can see it. I think that's the world we live in. What was supposed to be all together in one normal, non-gross thing is getting like cut and pulled apart every day. And every day it gets pulled further and further and further apart. And the work of being the church is bringing it back closer and closer and closer together. And all of the things that have separated it out and pulled it apart in a community like this, this is the place where that gets healed and brought back together. 
Mother Teresa says, if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. That's the work of being the church, remembering that we belong together, remembering that we belong to each other. And actually, that's how I want to close. I want us to keep, I want to read Paul from 1 Corinthians 12, how he keeps going about this notion of what it means to be the body. And keeping in mind what we just witnessed Jesus doing, let's listen to Paul say, well, now this is what it means to be the people of God. If this is the kind of person Jesus was and this is the kind of kingdom Jesus is establishing, then this is what it means to be the people of God. Let me just read this and then I'll pause for a moment as we close to just reflect on it together. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't for that reason stop being part of the body. So I'll pause here for just a minute and and just say that I think what Paul is saying is that we will look for any reason we can find to believe that we don't belong or to believe that others don't belong with us. And Paul, I think, is saying, you can believe that all you want. The reality is, just because you don't think you belong or you don't think they belong, it is still one body. So you're living outside of what is true. So then this is the part I really want us to hear in light of this woman and her story. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Tell me we did not encounter an indispensable person who seemed to be weaker. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Hear that. In a sense, it's not all equal here. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Let's pray. God, that you would remember us and put us back together and satisfy a thirst that goes looking for something to fill it. That you would bring us back into life with you and the broken pieces of our life back together and somehow to put us in a part of a family that bears witness to the way in which you bring us back together is remarkable. And so we are thankful and we stand in awe of that but we also 
ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, ways of being in the world that are a faithful reflection of that truth, that in a world that forgets and overlooks and pushes out to the side, that we would be a people who remember because you remembered us. Amen.